Hello. Welcome back to The Dark Side. I'm your host, Brianna, and Dyson is joining us again. Hi. We hope everyone had a lovely holiday season, and whatever you celebrate, we hope you all spent time with your loved ones and ate delicious food. Mm. Food is my favorite part. Yeah, Swish LA. <laughs> Swish LA? Well, it's turkey, but there's Swish LA first. <laughs> oh, the festive specials. The festive specials. <laughs> I was like, oh, is that what you celebrate? So shall I? Yeah, yeah, in a way. <laughs> so speaking of holidays, I wanted to start off with a true crime update. As any true crime fan knows, John Benet Ramsey was found dead in the basement of her home in Boulder, Colorado on the day after Christmas in 1996. And on December 20th of this year, mm-hmm. Boulder police stated they are going into what they describe as quote, genetic DNA testing processes to see if they can be applied to this case moving forward, end quote. Since none of the DNA they have from John Bonet's body and clothing match any persons of interests in CODIS. And that's a kind of a cool update. It's very cool. It's yeah. some progress on a, on a case that's it's, so infamous. It sounds like cryptic the way they said it, but it, to the me... CODIS? Well, like... That's just what you run DNA through. Okay. It's like, that's like FBI's DNA database. But like the way they said it, like, oh, we're going to do genetic DNA testing processes. Like, I think that just is what they're doing all over the states of like familial DNA and stuff like that. Like how they found Golden State Killer and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I just saw that article and I was like, oh, that's really cool. And it also was fitting because of the holidays and if it was 96 then that's like it's kind of it'd be the 25th anniversary of her death wow and i know that her family like remaining family um have been saying like just do this process yeah and then the investigators and stuff were like well like dna is great to have but like it's not a smoking gun but at least they're finally going really yeah uh, me not knowing too much about true crime. <laughs> I'm learning all sorts of things right off the bat. Yeah, so I just thought that was a good update to know. I mean, it was on the 20th, and like by the time this comes out, we're already into January, but yeah, still. Yeah. A cool update. So I just want to get that out of the way and also just get us kind of warmed in <laughs> to oh, yeah. recording. And so I think that we should just get right into this because I have a lot to tell you. All right. So first, I'm actually going to give like a disclaimer for this episode because uh, I'm going to mention sexual assault a lot. Mm -hmm. And also sources state slight variations with certain details. So I'm rolling with what I saw reported most frequently. Okay. I feel like that's unfortunately common when dealing with like Canadian cases. (laughs) yeah reporting is like meh yeah hard to come by yeah is it, they're really they're really minimalist on the details a lot of the time yeah if if they even get any details yeah all right ready oh i'm ready in the early 1970s women in the ontario cities of london and guelph were being attacked and sexually assaulted in their apartments in the middle of the night Some women awoke in time to see a dark figure looking down at them before slipping out of their bedroom and disappearing. 
Some women would get up in the morning to find things in their bedroom had been rearranged and their balcony doors wide open. And nearly a dozen women woke up to find a stranger in their bed assaulting them. But it was only a matter of time before this serial offender would escalate. Oh, goosebumps. Nightmare fuel. Yeah, that's nightmare fuel. Oh, the things moved around. That's, that's evil. I, that would freak me. Obviously, it would be exponentially worse to see a dark figure in your room and Mm. then like you notice it so it runs away (laughs) or Mm. like to wake up because someone's literally in your bed with you like that's obviously the worst but like i'm a very like meticulously organized and clean person yes you are i would notice right away if something was even like an inch off i'd be like kobe are you touching my things or was there a fucking dark figure creeping in my balcony? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what did you see, Kobe? <laughs> oh, that's actually kind of interesting that you said that. Oh, no. Between October 1973 and August 1974, there was four cases of women who were found dead in their apartments with no suspicion of foul play. The coroners ruled the deaths of these victims as accidental or natural causes. In reality... These women were murdered, but the police wouldn't realize this for another three years. These women are known as the natural causes victims. The first of the four natural causes victims was Mary Catherine Hicks in London, Ontario, a 20-year-old senior at the University of Western Ontario. On the morning of October 19th, 1973, Mary's roommate tried to wake Mary up, but realized she wasn't breathing. She called police and paramedics, but Mary had been dead for some time. She was in her bed, lying in a natural sleeping position with no obvious signs of a struggle or foul play. There was a pillow partly covering her face, but it wasn't considered suspicious. Since there was no sign of a struggle or forced entry into her apartment, pathologists declared Mary's death was attributed to suffocation caused by an allergic reaction to a prescription drug. Okay. Mm-hmm. With a pillow partially covering her face. Yeah. Especially since she was just like lying in bed all like naturally sleeping, but I don't know, maybe some people sleep with a pillow on their face. Guys, don't. I know. Don't. <laughs> That's the the crazy thing. Like, there's an autopsy done, and the pathologist was like, yeah, I guess this asphyxiation by allergic reaction to a prescription drug. It's 4.30. I'm off at 5. I think that'll check. I gotta feed my cat tuna when I get home or else it gets cranky. (laughs) The second victim was 42-year-old Alice Jane Ralston. On November 30th, 1973, Alice was found dead in her Guelph apartment. There was no obvious signs of trauma or violence, and the cause of death was attributed to hardened arteries, a condition Alice was known to have suffered from. Okay. The third victim was 27-year-old Eleanor Diane Hartwick. On March 4th, 1974, Eleanor was found dead in her London apartment. She was lying in bed with a book in her hand as if she had fallen asleep reading. Like Mary Hicks, Eleanor's death was attributed to an allergic reaction to prescription drugs. Okay. 
We're running with that then. Yeah, I mean, two or three prescription drugs. And I don't. Even, I couldn't even find anywhere if like these women were taking prescription drugs. Like, I mean, that's a pretty vague statement. Like, just prescription drugs. Well, it, I guess they would have been if the pathologist did a autopsy and I assume maybe a toxicology report, and they were like, oh, there's signs of you know whatever some sort of antidepressant or whatever could have been in their system right i guess that's it and it was an allergic reaction but like yeah i don't know it's odd to me it's really really odd that they're just like the chalk it up to this maybe that's just the I, 70s I for it. women i hate it because i can picture myself reading this in the paper and being like well that's that i guess you know nothing to worry about but um, just a shame, it's guys. Such a I, shame. I got a feeling that there may be something here to worry about. Okay, well, get this. The final of the natural causes victims was 49-year-old Doris Ethel Brown, but people in her life called her Dodie. Aww. So I'm going to as well. Oh, I like that name. Dodie had recently separated from her husband of 30 years and was living in a second-floor apartment with her two daughters, Colleen and Laura. She had started a new job and was looking forward to a new life. Dodie was involved in her church, and people in her life described her as a graceful and refined woman. Hmm. On August 8th, 1974, Colleen was away visiting relatives. That's one of the daughters. Laura was turning 16 the next day, and Dodie and Laura had planned to go to the Ministry of Transportation the next morning so Laura could get her learner's permit. The next morning, August 9th, Laura woke to the sound of Dodie's clock radio going off. When she entered her mother's room, she saw her lying with her blankets tucked up under her chin and knew immediately that something was wrong. Although the pathologist discovered minor abrasions to Dodie's body, blood in her throat and rectum, a small amount of blood underneath her body, and was of the belief she was most likely sexual, sexually assaulted after death, there was apparently nothing to suggest that there had been a struggle or foul play, so police were never notified to investigate, and the pathologist attributed Dodie's death to pulmonary edema. There's a lot to unpack there. That's so, terrible. It's really, really, really scary, because it's like, if there wasn't these um, findings of like blood in her throat, blood in her rectum... Um, blood underneath her abrasions to her body would they have just been like oh man that dang prescription drug yeah but there was like oh shit like there it seems like something happened but look at this apartment it's clean there's no sign of forced entry the daughter didn't hear anything like there couldn't have been foul play because of there's nothing pointing to it so i guess we'll just go with pulmonary edema I can think of three things you just listed that pointed towards something else happening. Especially since they were like, oh, like all this suggests that she was sexually assaulted, like post-mortem. But they never even notified the police, which is like, I don't, I, is the 70s? Is that why? Like, it's just unbelievable. Just, just the Wild West. I, I, the Wild South Ontario. <laughs> Southwestern Ontario. Jesus Christ. Pathologists are like prescription drugs or pulmonary edema. Which one is it? That's also, awful. Also, pulmonary, pul pulmonary edema is just uh, fluid in your lungs. 
so you know. Shit, fluid. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> she was swimming. Oh, that's that's actually kind of terrifying that they just, you know, brush that off. It is the whole the whole thing is horrifying. There's obviously look at her body. There's signs of foul play. She's in this this state of obvious abuse to her body. There's blood. Mm-hmm. There's blood out, not even just in her throat and rectum. It's underneath her body in the bed. Mm-hmm. Like that alone to me is like there was foul play here. Yeah. And also like the daughter walked in and just knew something was wrong. Because yeah, they like again, like with all of these like victims mentioned so far, the blanket, they're always like tucked in bed. And, yeah. And like in this case, like um, the daughter was like, yeah, the blanket was like right up to her chin. And like, I don't know who sleeps like that if you're not a corpse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that. that's almost like a placement i guess a g- 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 goat sorry <laughs> we're gonna have to do that one again aren't we <laughs> just you know it was fine <laughs> yeah you go 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 but it, it did it, it sounded like it was staged in i guess you know i, I don't want to assume but like even in the most smallest of ways to have done that. I mean, the daughter mm-hmm. walked in and went, the fuck? That is an excellent observation, and you're already one step ahead of these pathologists, oh. apparently. I can't even say investigators because they weren't even called. Yeah, they weren't even there. So the first three victims and associated crime scenes were meticulously attended to. So even though Dodie's murder was far more vicious and frenzied, and it was obvious the killer was changing their behavior, the police still had no idea they were dealing with a serial killer who had just taken the life of their fourth victim. By the end of 1974, the killer's crimes had escalated again, and their next three victims suffered violent deaths and post-mortem sexual assault the deaths of these three victims were dubbed the vicious murders. The first of the vicious murders was 23-year-old Diane Beats. Diane was described as the girl next door Her boyfriend, James Britton, who went by Jim, had proposed to her on December 30th, 1974. Diane said yes, and they planned to be married in May of 1975. Early the next morning, December 31st, so today's December 31st. Oh, okay. (laughs) You were right. (laughs) Early the next morning, December 31st at 3.30 a.m., the superintendent of Diane's Guelph apartment reported he looked out his window and saw a brown Buick idling with one person in the driver's seat. Other residents in the building also remember seeing a brown car in the parking lot between 4 and 8 a.m. the same morning. An exhaust stain in the snow corroborated these reports and showed that the car had been idling for a while. At 5.45 a.m., Jim and Diane enjoyed an early breakfast in their apartment before he left for work. Diane was taking a Christmas vacation from her job at Cable 8 Television in Guelph and told Jim that she was going to do laundry that day and then get ready for the New Year's Eve party they planned on attending that night. At 6.15 a.m., Jim left the apartment to go to work in Mississauga. At 10.30 a.m., police responded to a call about luggage stolen from the caller's car just a few blocks away from Diane's apartment. 
At 6 p.m., Jim returns to Diane's apartment. He finds clothes soaking in the sink, overturned furniture, and heads to the bedroom to look for Diane. He finds her naked in her bed under a bunch of blankets. She was dead, and she was laying with her arms bound behind her with a pair of nylon stockings, and her bra was knotted around her neck. Jim immediately called the police. Upon their arrival, investigators found one of Diane's slippers outside her apartment door. They entered her apartment and were puzzled by how tidy the crime scene was. Aside from the overturned furniture, things had been cleaned, surfaces were cleaned, things were organized, dishes were done, stuff like that. There was no sign of a struggle or robbery. So police chief Robert McCarran speculated Diane knew her killer, suggesting it could be a former boyfriend or friend, or she had answered a knock at the door where she was immediately seized by the perpetrator. I'm sorry, did you, maybe jumping ahead, do they, the dishes were done by who? (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. (laughs) That's what I mean when you're like, when I'm like, sources have varying information so yep. it's like you have to find like the common like thread amongst all of them yeah so the picture that i could paint about how this apartment looked was that everything was meticulous mm-hmm. except there was a few pieces of overturned furniture and uh, obviously jim was like yeah that that wasn't like that before i left right and there was some clothes soaking in the sink. I don't know what sink. I assume the laundry room sink because she was going to do laundry. Plus there had been like dishes done. So they were like cleaned. Mm-hmm. And when their investigators are saying like there's no sign of a struggle, I think it's because everything, even though there was overturned furniture, everything was like so meticulous and like, clean there wasn't a mess of any kind it was almost like a stage scene or something yeah or like a bit more frenzied i i hate that because it's almost like sounding like preparing for company and i really don't like that it's very very creepy also the most canadian the most (laughs) canadian investigation where they find the exhaust pipe stain in the snow (laughs) I know oh, that enough people goodness. notice this car and they're like, let's just, uh, let's go around back. Let's check it out. Oh yeah. <laughs> Look at that stain. I've been idling for a while mm-hmm. and they're all sipping Tim Hortons. Oh yeah, probably. <laughs> There's probably also just one grizzled Quebecer cop in there too somewhere. <laughs> uh, yeah. What the was... hell are these Tim Beebs? <laughs> Tap our neck. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Beebs. That's a very Canadian reference. I'm sorry for anyone who doesn't get that one. I, f- I feel like, I mean, I've seen Tim Hortons in the States, in like very Northern States, and, but I don't think that they had Timbits. And if they did, I don't think they have Tim Beebs. No, they got donut holes, I heard. <laughs> yeah, I heard they got donut holes. That might be Dunkin' Donuts. I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on the details, but... Ugh. I wouldn't know. When I went to um, New York, I got Dunkin' Donuts, the worst coffee I've ever had in my entire life. Even worse than Starbucks coffee. And oh. like, I drink black coffee. Yeah. So like, you can't just hide it with a bunch of cream or 
maple syrup or shots or whatever the hell people put in it. It's just burnt mud. It was so gross. It was so gross. Yeah, that's why they're always angry all the time. And I and I got something to eat too, but I don't even remember what it was because it was also gross. So like maybe I just went to a bad Dunkin' Donuts, but I'm just not a fan. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't that's... get donut holes. No. No donut holes. <laughs> so is that a Timbit? Yeah. Yeah. Timbits are in the States are donut holes. <laughs> Unless you go to Tim Hortons and then verdict's still out on that one. So how do you translate Tim Beebs to donut holes? Don't do this to me. <laughs> I think everyone came up with an answer. I don't need to say it. Everyone use your imagination. Thank you for participating. <laughs> Sorry about it. Sorry. <laughs> so, so how do you speak like a Canadian? Oh, I'm sorry about that one. Oh, sorry there, eh, bud? Oh, yeah, we're going to go out for a rip, eh, bud? Well, let's just go outside, hack two darts, right? Don't leave riling, though. They're going to notice the exhaust stain in the snowbank. <laughs> no, that was really good. <laughs> Thanks. The exhaust stain in the snowbank. <laughs> what else is Canadian? Uh, I don't know. We had cold winters. Donuts and coffee. Going out for a rip. Tim, Tim Hortons in particular. Yeah, going out for a rip, bud. Yeah. Everyone just watch Letter Kenny, okay? You'll get all the Canadian references you need. <laughs> all right. Other tenants hadn't heard anything, so the only witness to what had happened in the apartment was Diane's cat. Really? Oh, my God. Okay. So that's what I meant when you're like, did Kobe see anything? The autopsy put the time of death at 2 p.m. It revealed a few bruises, and the pathologist reported that Diane was carried to the bedroom and strangled with her bra. She was bound and raped post-mortem. The police carried out an extensive investigation where detectives questioned more than 200 people, searched for the dark-colored four-door Buick that was seen parked at the rear of the apartment building with the exhausting in the snowbank, and offered a $5,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the killer. As local residents were now aware of the tragedy, a delivery driver called police to let them know he had dropped off flowers to Diane a few days before her murder. Police looked into this lead and learned that the flowers were not sent by her fiancé, Jim, but an unknown stranger. Ew. I know. So creepy. And guess what the worst part about that is? I'll just say it now. No one knows where the flowers came from. They couldn't figure it out. Like, the shop? Like, they couldn't figure out, like, it didn't come from a shop or something? Well, well, yeah, it did, because there was a delivery driver that brought the flowers there. Okay. Oh, like, they just don't know who, who, they don't know who... delivered it at all. Yeah, like, they don't know, like, who purchased them. Yeah, like, purchased it, sorry, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. who, like, made the order and was like, yo, give these flowers to Diane Beats. Oh, I thought, see, I thought you were holding on to that one. I thought you did know, okay. That's, that's I would have, but that's why I'm like, I'm just jumping the gun and letting you know now. Like, we never figure it out, which is uh, very, very upsetting. Yeah, that's super upsetting. Because such a... Uh, first of all, it's personal to even know where where someone lives. Mm-hmm. Especially in an apartment building. Yeah, they they knew the unit number and everything. Like, terrifying. Yeah. And flowers are so, like like, personal, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like usually from like a loved one, typically. I also don't like that they're used in both cases, like for someone you love or when someone passes. 
oh my god i didn't even think of that and that is so creepy yeah. i wonder what type of flowers they were because you know how you there is like funeral flowers like you don't want to give somebody like calla lilies because they look like funeral flowers i was gonna say daisies because i just don't know flowers <laughs> yeah, so you... i was like is that a death flower <laughs> <laughs> there is like funeral flowers yeah so like i want to i wonder what type of flowers they were yeah th- this is where you get really upset with like I guess I don't know if I'm mad at Canadian reporting or if I'm mad at Canadian my, investigators or Canadian pathologists. The, all of them so far. <laughs> Canadian delivery uh, drivers. I was going to say the stories at the time don't <laughs> seem like they're carrying much weight, not enough details. I know. And you just win some, lose some. It's like, finally, we have an extensive investigation happening here. But who sent those goddamn flowers? Yeah. Those G-dang flowers. Hmm. And again, we're just going to bring it right back down because despite the intense investigation, the case went cold. Great. It went as cold as the snowbanks. Oh, they're so lucky that the killer didn't have a Zamboni to clean up that too, eh? I bet if the this fucking killer knew that his dumb brown car left a dumb brown stain in a probably gray snowbank. <laughs> yeah, it's probably one of those gross snowbanks, yeah. right? Yeah. Then he, if I bet that if he knew that he left that there, he would have wiped it away. Yeah. Just based on how meticulous sounding we're already getting. Yep. I hate that. I hate when they're meticulous. It's, oh, it's just so cold and calculated. It's calculated, right? And you get a kind of like a sense of maybe something being ritualistic. Yep. I hate that. I hate that. The second of the vicious murders was 23-year-old Luella George. Luella was a country girl who wanted to move to the city and chose London for its size, not too big and not too small. She was engaged and worked as a snack bar cashier in a hospital on Grand Avenue and lived on the fourth floor in an apartment building directly across the street. On April 15, 1977, Luella hadn't shown up to work, so a concerned co-worker went to check on her. The co-worker found Luella dead in a tidy, made-up bed, and when police arrived to investigate the scene, they noticed her underwear drawer was ransacked and some jewelry was missing. The robbing now. Mm-hmm. Well, robbing or taking something as a souvenir. Well, see, that is like initially what anyone would think, especially about underwear and then jewelry. Mm-hmm. So the police searched the area surrounding the building, and a few blocks away from Luella's apartment, they found the underwear and jewelry disposed of in a garbage can. What? I know! This case is so weird. This this killer is just chaotic. They're, like, in Diane's apartment, meticulously tidying surfaces, doing dishes, not really... Like tightly putting her in her bed like he was the others. She was just placed under blankets and there was still some overturned furniture. And then in this one, Luella is in a really tidy made up bed. She's tucked in, but the underwear is ransacked. It it seems like... It's chaotic. It's chaotic, but like with like these little hints of like, it sounds like he's getting off on on doing these like odd things that will throw them for loops. Mm -hmm. Like... I know the I know the cleaning up stuff can serve a purpose, but that's also a mind game, right? And also, mm-hmm. it makes you wonder, like you know, we'll never know, obviously, but so you take the jewelry, the underwear, and you think to yourself, oh, like 
you're going to take it away. It's going to be a souvenir, but then you find it in a dumpster and you wonder, is that also a play exactly. or did he get cold feet? You know, going like, I don't want to get caught with this. Maybe a cop car drove by, but like, I'm leaning on mind games. This guy's a freak. Oh, he's definitely a freak. And yep. you are. Those are excellent observations. Mm-hmm. Pathologists determined she had been strangled to death and sexually assaulted post-mortem. The same MO of the first two London victims. London police now believed they were dealing with a serial killer and began investigating. Thank you, London police. It's about time. Yeah, welcome. Welcome to the party. Thank you for showing up. <laughs> they canvassed the area reviewed the building's tenant list, and spoke to potential eyewitnesses. Three months later, not far from Luella's apartment, that belief was confirmed when the killer struck again and again displayed disturbing signs of escalation. In July 1977, Donna Veldboom was 22 years old and described as very popular with a great social life. She was from New Brunswick and had been living in London for less than a year, where she worked at Union Gas. Donna spent the evening of July 15, 1977, visiting a friend, and this is the last known time she was seen alive. She didn't show up for work the next day, and her co-workers were concerned because she was described as consistently punctual, so they called the police to conduct a welfare check. When the police arrived at Donna's fifth floor apartment, she didn't answer, so they let themselves into a horrible scene. Donna was dead, lying naked in her bed, and the third victim of the vicious murders. She had been strangled and stabbed with a knife, and sexually assaulted, bathed, and posed post-mortem. She had also been slashed across the chest. That's This is escalating rapidly and it goes back to what you had pointed out before about how it seems like these victims are posed and in this one they were like okay there's no denying it anymore like these women have been posed post-mortem i i hate this because you see the pattern like you see it you see it getting worse and worse Mm -hmm. from from almost not even knowing exactly there's like uh pieces of the mo that are like carrying over but then how like I've mentioned, like it's escalating. There's like additional things or things becoming more chaotic or just just horrible. Mm-hmm. Like like he's outdoing himself each time. Yeah. He goes in there. He has this gross little demo that he wants to stick to. Uh, but he like always just was strangling and assaulting postmortem. Yeah. And and this one. She was slashed across her chest and there wasn't any signs in any of the other uh, murders that there was a knife involved. London police started investigating Donna's murder. They were disturbed by the escalating M.O. and the amount of time the killer spent in the apartment. They wondered if the person was familiar with the apartment since they had made their way around so well and spent so much time in it. They began reviewing a list of tenants in Donna's building and recognized a name they'd seen when reviewing a list of previous tenants renting in Luella George's building. This name was Russell Johnson. They searched further into Johnson's past and found he was recently separated from his wife, and investigators thought this could be a psychological trigger of some sort. Like his breaking point? Mm-hmm. That set him off? Mm-hmm. Okay. Just it was just like a very initial like speculation like we saw this guy's name in this other building. He used to live there. Now he lives in this building where 
this woman's been murdered too. And he had recently separated from his wife, so let's check him out. Okay. All right. Police work. <laughs> Police work. That's a start. That's a start. Yep. So they looked into his background. They learned that he grew up in Guelph. So they called the police department there and spoke to the lead investigator of Diane Beetz's murder to let them know of their person of interest. Guelph police checked their records and confirmed that the morning following Diane's murder, Johnson had reported a break-in to his car a block away from her apartment, a brown four-door Buick. Hmm. Since Johnson was a current resident in Donna's London building, a former resident of Luella's London building, and had parked his car within walking distance of Diane's apartment in Guelph, the London police department believed that they had their killer and enough circumstantial evidence to pursue Johnson. They charged eight detectives paired in four cars to 24-hour surveillance of Johnson. One of the first thing they noticed was Johnson was obsessed with cleanliness. Oh, imagine that. He washed his hands compulsively and always wore gloves and petroleum jelly at work and the gym to prevent quote-unquote contamination. Oh, so he was a full-blown germaphobe. Full-blown. Oh, the petroleum like, jelly. I always... I'm sorry if there's someone that's a germaphobe and they do that, but oh my God, what are you, a snail? I've never heard of that, to be honest. And then I was just imagining, I'm a little bit of a germaphobe. I'm not full out wear gloves and petroleum jelly, but because I am a little bit of a germaphobe, if I went to touch something that the, that was then goopy with Vaseline, I would freak out. Yeah, the, I would imagine the Vaseline holds the germs in. But like, is the, is it the petroleum jelly on the outside of the gloves or inside? I feel like it's inside. I feel like it's inside <sighs> as like an additional layer. I'm not trying to be judgmental, but it's just... And also, I feel like he just... wears women's gloves, and he wears the petroleum daily to slide right into those bad boys. Who <laughs> he likes a tight fit. Well, tight fit. They're European mitts. They're mitts. They're not fingers. I've decided. I don't want to talk about I'm trying to bash anyone that's a germaphobe. I've been around a pandemic. I think everyone's a germaphobe at they this don't, point. Honestly, they don't even want you to touch them. So, oh, thanks. I'm here all night. Oh yeah. Is this thing on. <laughs> he also displayed signs of psychosis, driving aimlessly for blocks before exiting his vehicle, standing on the sidewalk for a period of time, and then driving off again. When police learned that Johnson was planning an August vacation, they decided it was time to bring him in for questioning. On July 28, 1977, they knocked on the door of his basement apartment several times. Johnson finally opened it, revealing a spotlessly clean abode with gleaming floorboards. After making a call to his lawyer and then to his girlfriend, he agreed to go with police. Okay. I'm not I'm not going to say anything about people who talk to their lawyer before they talk to the police because, you know, as I feel like we kind of <clears> screw <throat> people over. We say, oh, he didn't want to talk to the police right away. Guilty. But at oh, the same yeah. time, we're also the people that say, like, don't I just talk to the police. Talk to your fucking lawyer first. I'd be like, is there um, a reason you're here? You want me to go downtown with you? That's nice. Yeah. Literally come back with like. No, I'm not taking your inadmissible lie detector test you weirdo um but also why did the cops wait for 
his vacation. Well, they didn't. It's either they... incredibly nice or incredibly rude. It's that they only had circumstantial evidence. They, they, he fit with where he, the locations, how he conveniently lived in the two apartment buildings that two of the victims died in. And he's the fucking dumbass who reported a break into his car while he was literally a block away from another murder victim. Inserting and himself into the investigation in a way. No, he literally, someone literally broke into his car. And he was pissed about it, so he reported it to the police. Oh, that wasn't a thing. He was, oh my god. Yeah, exactly. This is So this guy's priorities are just out of whack. Yeah. And um, so they were like, okay, well he grew up in Guelph, where some of these women have been murdered. He lives in London, where some of these women have been murdered. He fits our profile. We'll just surveil him to see if we can find anything solid or anything else incriminating. Yeah, and don't forget that whole thing where he gets out and just stares at, on the sidewalk for the a psychosis while. Psychosis seeming signs. Yeah, that's a really creepy. That you're just, and plus, they're these officers are following him. They're surveilling him twenty four seven, and they're just like, where the hell is he going? And he's just driving around, and then he gets out, stands on the sidewalk, and gets back in his car and drives. I really want to know what time of day that was. Oh, that's true. I have no idea. Yeah. It's actually, it doesn't mm -hmm. matter. I mean, technically, because it's still circumstantial evidence, but it matters to me. So they were, I know, I agree. So they were obviously just like, okay, well, we'll just keep tailing them and see if anything else incriminating comes up. And obviously the only thing that they really noticed was like, he's obsessively clean. All these crime scenes have been meticulously clean. And he is like in a state of psychosis or something. So then when they were like, shit, he's going to be on vacation at some point in August. Let's just, let's just do it. Let's just bring him in and see what before, we can get out of it. Before we go somewhere. Mm -hmm. He was interviewed by police and immediately broke down and confessed to everything he had done. The three vicious murders of Diane, Luella, and Donna, and the four natural causes murders of Mary, Alice, Eleanor, and Dodie, which at the time, police had no idea were anything but natural causes. So this dude sits down in front of them. They're like, we are like pretty certain you murdered Donna or yeah, Donna and Luella because you happened to also live in those apartment buildings. Diane, you were in the area. Okay. Pardon? Four more? Four more murders? That when they look into the records, they're like, these were listed as natural causes. What the fuck are we dealing with? During the interview, Johnson confessed to police how he managed to enter all of the victims' apartments. Scaling up the sides of the building, going from balcony to balcony. Sorry, I heard the Spider-Man theme song in my head. Right? Uh, it is something you would only think of for, like, fucking Spider-Man. Bare hands or mm -hmm. straight up creepy Vaseline glove mm -hmm. mitt. Uh, Scaling the sides of apartment buildings, going from balcony to balcony to enter these apartments. Guess who started locking their balcony? <laughs> well, I know the answer to that. <laughs> Kobe did. <laughs> Just a little toe bean pause. Yeah. Yeah, I know. You started locking your, your, uh, your balcony door. Mm-hmm. Because apparently this guy can climb several stories. So, well, like I was listing off going through them. Some of these women were in like the fifth floor. Oh, that's awful. And he was 
scaling the sides of them, but it just gets worse, okay? I'm sorry, it gets worse. He claimed to experience sudden, overpowering feelings of loneliness that would drive him to scale high-rises without concern for his personal safety. If he saw a family sleeping inside the apartment, he would move on because he claimed to love families and didn't want to hurt them. Weird. He said after the murders, he would tidy up and clean the scene. He made one victim's bed and washed another victim's dirty dishes. At each crime scene, he did his best to make the deaths appear natural. Did do the dishes. Mm-hmm. Did a little freak. Yeah. Oh, I knew something was weird about the fucking dishes. It's, yeah, also it's just like, okay, listen, Brianna, we know that you like to be detailed, but why are you telling us about the clean dishes? That's nice. Because this is the fucking Mr. Clean killer. <laughs> He's the magic eraser no one invited to their home. I'm sorry, but he did have hair. He did. I was going to ask. I he was had, going to ask. He had a lot of hair. Uh, well, it was the 70s. On his head, right? <laughs> you just you just played off of your own comment. It was the 70s. On his head, right? Because <laughs> I was trying to find my place, so I was like, I think Dyson's talking. I'll just let him keep going. And then so I was vamping. You didn't like it? I did. I did. It is funny. Okay. Dishes. At each crime scene, he did his best to make the deaths appear natural. He explained that after killing a victim, he would feel remorseful, so he'd put her back to bed to quote unquote make it right again. And then he'd spoon their dead bodies for hours. I'm finding so much shit that is just garbage in this. Um, oh, like I don't I don't kill families. Then what what the fuck did you see when you broke into that poor woman's house and she had her two daughters? Well, yes, the one daughter for sure. I don't even know if he saw her because the other daughter was away. But oh, yeah, right, like sorry. I don't even know if he would have noticed that daughter. But it doesn't matter because yes, you were on yeah. the right track. Because there's also something else that comes up when you're like, okay, so that just goes out the window. Yeah, and so does I don't know slashing a woman across the chest and posing her later. Mm-hmm. You know that's also a red flag. And then oh, Something I felt off your Tinder profile. <laughs> I felt remorseful, so. I had to make it right again, so I put them back to bed. But then I spooned their dead body for hours. Because he was sorry. Cuddling. That's so gross. When discussing Diane Beats, Johnson said he was visiting his father in Guelph and knew of Diane because his ex-wife used to live in the same apartment building. So he stalked and murdered her while he was in town. So I think that he's the one who sent her those flowers. But it's never been confirmed and he's never admitted to it or mentioned it. But I think he was the one who sent her those flowers. Because be he honest, was in the, town. With the police work though, like did anyone even think to ask him? I, it's a great question. Yeah. It's a great question. And the answer is probably no. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Sorry about it, bud. When discussing Luella George, Johnson confirmed he climbed up to her fourth floor apartment balcony immediately attacked and strangled her and sexually assaulted her after death. He also confirmed he was the one who stole her underwear and jewelry, but disposed of them a few blocks away from the building. He doesn't say why he did this. And I don't really think he has a real reason just based on how weird and chaotic he is. Maybe he, he just realized like, Oh, like he has to carry it around. Or maybe he realized it doesn't really do it for him after the fact, or maybe he didn't want to take him home where 
his girlfriend could find them like i don't know like maybe his dumbass thought like oh i could well not not the underwear but like the jewelry oh, i could pawn this and then his dumbass remember that like oh yeah i stole this from a fucking murder crime scene yeah like literally anything is possible with this guy yep when discussing donna veldboom it was determined that donna not only lived in the same apartment building as johnson but she lived directly above him mm. he stated he had been out drinking when he was overcome by his impulses so he went home climbed up onto her balcony and managed to bypass the lock using his plastic punch card like he slid it into the side and pushed the thing down mm-hmm. okay um i i think that that part is just so creepy because she lived in the unit above him so yep. he's in the same unit so he knows exactly where everything is how to work everything mm -hmm. it's terrifying yeah yeah also when his like he gave into his cravings when he was his after impulses. His, his impulses like my impulses mm -hmm. to get mcdonald's when i'm drinking i'm like i need a cheeseburger even though i shouldn't eat beef <laughs> yeah you're gonna pay for it but like drunk he's not gonna pay for it so it's fine i just i'll eat anything when i'm drunk yeah i my impulse isn't to go home climb up onto my i mean i'm on the top floor but like climb onto someone's balcony break into their unit and assault them it just brings a whole nother element he's scaling the fucking walls drunk yeah that's somehow that's worse he's somehow and we'll hear um about it later but like he usually is always drunk or at least drinking and a germaphobe like yeah he wasn't able to get over it even with the drinking this guy's fucked this I guy's know. something else i know he's terrifying he's terrifying yeah he's terrifying I realized I said it twice, so I thought I'd say it three times. Oh, good. Can't wait for that to appear in my fucking window. <laughs> he claimed he just wanted to lay down beside her in bed to feel better. But when she woke up to adjust the fan, he strangled her to death, stabbed her with a kitchen knife, slashed her chest open so he could, quote, crawl inside of her to be safe and warm, end quote. I have nothing for that. He's like, oh, I was, I, want, I didn't want to give in to my impulses, but I did. But I swear it wasn't to do anything. I just wanted to lay beside her to feel less alone. But then she woke up. So I brutally murdered her and slit her open so that I could try and crawl inside of her. Did he try and crawl inside of her? I don't think so. I hope not. But like the, it was his impulse to slash her open because if he could crawl inside of her, it would be safe and warm in there. Ugh fucked this guy's this guy's gross <clears throat> this guy's worse than the germs he is the germ he is the fucking germ these confessions led to him being charged with the first degree murders of donna diane and luella the three victims of the vicious murders so evidently this man is a disturbed monster but let me tell you a little more about the sorry excuse of a human all right I'm just getting a little bit of background on Russell Morris Johnson, who was born in 1947 in St. Thomas, Ontario, but he grew up in Guelph. Yes, I said in 1947 because literally there's no exact birthday for him, which is another reason we don't We're have stuff on this episode. Fucking details, eh? They're. I mean, I I went to, through the St. Thomas archives. I went on Ancestry. I went on Newspapers.com. Right, the archive that has all the, like, old, new... Yes, I know that one. And, yeah. like, there's nothing. Nothing. So, 
Unreal. So all I know is he was born in 1947. You'd think you'd want to know about a guy who scales walls and brutally <clears throat> strangles women. You'd think. Fucking Canada. Where criminals have all the rights. Yeah. He grew up poor with two brothers and parents who suffered from mental illnesses. His father didn't allow his sons to celebrate Christmas because he believed the stores were, quote, owned by Jews who simply wanted to drain the pockets of Christians, end quote. Uh, they're not. Um, <laughs> just straight just up. characterization, guys. But Jesus Christ. Religious obser- observances. Fucking hell. Religious observances were heavily enforced in the household. Johnson went to church every day and confession once a week. He says the overall message he got from attending church and confession was that, quote, you could do wrong, just don't get caught, end quote. That's a good life lesson. Because you just, you fuck up, you do whatever you want to do, but then you just go to confession. And you, what, what do you do? You do like five Hail Marys and you're absolved of your sin. This guy was either going to land in politics or a prison cell. <laughs> or maybe both. <laughs> or maybe both. Or maybe none. Hmm? <laughs> hmm? I didn't like that. <laughs> from a young age, Johnson suffered from mental health issues and had an unhealthy attachment to his mother. Okay. Classmates from his elementary school in Guelph remembered him as a colossal, awkward kid who was always getting beat up by smaller children. Despite his size, he lacked the aggression to defend himself and hated conversation. Good. Yeah. Good. Those little little pipsqueaks were at least trying to instill something in him. Yeah. In his late teens, he was employed as a bouncer, but had a reputation for being conveniently absent whenever a customer got rowdy or violent. Another display of disliking confrontation. What the fuck are you doing as a bouncer? I think it's just because he was big. Like, he was tall and fit. So they were like, you are a great uh, candidate for a bouncer. Oh, God. And it's all and it the short guys easy. that pick the fights in the bars, too. So he's really fucked. He's like 0 for 10. And all those, those little short guys will beat him up. Yeah. His juvenile records show arrests for sexual offenses, such as stealing women's underwear off of clothesline and being a peeping Tom. That makes sense. Okay, now honest. here's... He, he, uh, just listen to this. I don't want to, but okay. In 1969, at the age of 22... Johnson voluntarily entered a psychiatric hospital in London, Ontario for treatment where he was diagnosed as a compulsive sexual deviant. He was given medication, deemed cured, and sent on his merry way. Oh, what a redemption story. Oh, wait, no, no, because <laughs> of the rest of the things mm-hmm. you were telling me mm-hmm. for the last hour. Mm-hmm. Okay, oh, well. Isn't that just absolutely frustrating? And he did this, he was like, okay, there's something wrong with me. I need any treatment or help. And they were like, oh, you know what? You just got a good old case of that compulsive sexual deviancy. Uh, some medicine and have some fun. All right, bye. Have some medicine, take these magazines, and don't bug us again. Later, he was married and had a child, but left them when his wife supposedly cheated on him. I got tongue twisted because I was angry because, like I said before, when you said, oh, it just seems like a bunch of essentially bullshit, when he's like, Oh, if I saw families, I just moved on. I didn't want to bother them. I really care for families. I love families. Meanwhile, he has he was married with a child and he was like, uh, you cheated on me and then abandoned them. Yeah, just left. So like, like it's just no accountability at all. 
no one cares for your sob story. So because of this, his wife supposedly cheating on him and him leaving his family, he channeled his anger into weightlifting and amateur bodybuilding at a local London gym and heavily consumed diet pills and alcohol. So when you say, did he just scale up these buildings with his bare hands? Yeah, because he was, first of all, already naturally big. Mm -hmm. And then he was weightlifting and doing amateur bodybuilding. So this guy's just jacked. Hate that. No one stood a chance. It's so scary. Why couldn't he have like skipped leg day or something? God damn it. He was employed full time as an auto worker at the Talbotville Ford plant. And around this time in his life, he met a woman named Barb and they began dating. Everyone in his life, from people at the gym, the Ford plant, his girlfriend, they all said he was a good guy and they even referred to him as good old Russ. Can we start doing like a true crime bingo? <laughs> and one of it's just, he was a good guy. He was a good guy or he was a, uh, what's the other one? He was a pillar of the community. Yeah, or a charming nickname. Or ever, like was a, Rust. he was a great family man until he wasn't <laughs> we should do some sort of bingo that would yeah, be really be, funny that would be fun every time a like i don't want to say trope but they're tropes yeah they're, they're honest to god they're tropes then we it's not in the stories drink. it's just in how we tell it so also this guy's a fucking per perverted rapist murdering dick so fucking fuck rust rust <laughs> Good old Russ. So he may oh, have. Russ. Sorry. It's fine. It was funny. He's rusty and he left a gross old. Crusty Russ. Crusty, rusty stain in a snowbank. Oh. So he may have been good old Russ by day, but by night he was a serial offender and murderer. I wrote that and I was actually really proud of it. <laughs> but your face looked so disappointed. Is it too cheesy? Because he's scaling walls, Brianna. And the, what you just said is <laughs> a nice family man by day fighting crime by night. Except for he's not. Except he's I didn't. People. I put it in quotes. It's subtext. <laughs> he, he may have been, quote unquote, good old Russ by day. But by night, he was a serial offender and murderer. It's a good line. It was a good line. I'll give it to you. It was a good line. Okay. I just can't get past the gloves, though. Well, don't think about him. Oh, okay. Just ignore it. <laughs> Johnson sexually assaulted almost a dozen women who survived. He would often stalk his potential victims and climb up the sides of apartment buildings to enter through their unlocked balcony door. Johnson once scaled a building to the 15th floor, only no. to find the balcony doors locked. 15. Oh my God! What? Yo, you think you're safe? I know that's the thing that is so horrible. If you're on the second floor, you're like, I'm probably safe. If you're on the fifteenth floor, you're leaving your doors and windows, blinds, everything wide open because you're on the fifteenth floor. You're not supposed to get pests on the fifteenth floor. That's the selling point. But you got this <laughs> freak of a bodybuilder <laughs> climbing up to say hi. Say hi. Do your dishes. Maybe kill you later. I don't know. You don't know. You don't. It depends. Do you wake up? Do you see him looming above? Does he run away? You don't know. Oh, he's a fucking. It's part the, of the scary gamble. There is nothing that I hate more in this story than the thought of waking up in someone, uh, some someone slash something shadow in your room. A giant body, body building, tall, 
man who's probably breathing heavy. He seems like he's a heavy breather. He went 15. Oh. He scaled the walls he to didn't be get, there. He didn't get into that one. Yeah, but he scaled the walls to be in that room. I know. If he couldn't enter the intended victim's apartment, he would scale the building until he found an unlocked door to enter, where he would watch his victims sleep, sometimes even laying next to them while they slept, before attacking them. On one occasion, Johnson tried switching up his tactics and buzzed a potential victim's apartment claiming to be a police officer. The woman phoned the police for confirmation, but by the time she spoke to the dispatcher, learned that no officer by that name she gave existed in their department, and buzzed back down to confront the man, he had fled. But he couldn't flee anymore. Because on February 1st, 1978, Johnson was brought to trial to face the consequences of his heinous actions. During the trial, a psychiatrist named Dr. R.L. Stein. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh my god, you actually got me on that. <laughs> I, I pictured it. I pictured it. I can hear the Goosebumps theme song. Uh, do you think Goosebumps is still on Netflix? Yeah, that was recent, right? It must be. No, I've watched it even, like even when I still lived at home. Oh, on Netflix, really? Yeah. Oh, I thought they just got that. Maybe oh, they just got I'm it thinking back. of scary stories you tell in the dark. I think. <sighs> Not the same. So back to, oh wait, Errol, Errol Stein. Because he always because he's like French Canadian, right? Oh, <clears throat> I didn't know that part. I might have made that up. I thought he was multiple authors under one name. Fact check, fact check, fact check, fact check. Try to say yeah. that. Fact check, fact check, fact check. <laughs> now I'm just saying fat chick in the mic. <laughs> it's Ew. a lot. My stupid David Spade laugh probably makes it peak. <laughs> Stop it. It's so wheezy. Something's really funny and then I sound like David Spade. Okay. What would you do if David Spade is listening to this right now? He's like, what the fuck? I would be like, hey, David, David, remember? Okay, picture this, if you will. It was 2015, and I got Tommy Boy on Blu-ray. And I was really pumped about it because it's my favorite comedy ever. So I posted it on Instagram, and you liked it? You well, liked it? dreams come true, big guy. I love you, David. You are a great guy. I love David Spade. Oh, my God. He seems fun. Okay, I'll stop thinking about David. <clears throat> okay. During the trial, a psychiatrist named Dr. R.L. Fleming described Johnson's childhood environment as the most chaotic and disturbed he had ever seen. About his obsessive cleanliness, the depths of his compulsions were further revealed when the court learned, before leaving his home, Johnson would spend up to an hour cleaning dishes and rearranging his apartment. Every time, every time before he left home, he would do this. Oh. Do you want to know why? Why? Well, a psychiatrist named Dr. Douglas Wickware speculated that Johnson did this as a ritual and it was to create barriers for his homicidal urges, but they were defense mechanisms that would ultimately crumble after he consumed a few drinks since alcohol acted as a sort of facilitator for his criminal activity. 
Oh my god. So he was like trying it's like a Jekyll Hyde type thing. And he's like trying to outsmart like that part of him that gets those gross urges. He's like, Well, maybe if I change things up in my apartment and like do I don't know why he's obsessed with the dishes. It's so weird. He's obsessed with doing dishes. It sounds like an obsessive compulsive disorder. For sure. For sure it like, is. Oh, Like just piled on top of everything else. So. But like Jesus, that's fucking creepy. It's so creepy. It's like I just never heard anything like this. Mm-hmm. And I also I just thought it was like interesting point um, that this psychiatrist, Dr. Wickware, noticed because after commit his, committing his crimes, he would spend like all of this time in his victims' apartments, cleaning, doing dishes, rearranging their things, and even admitting admitted to consuming alcohol when he got the urge to enter Donna Veldboom's apartment. So it is like a really astute observation. I I don't like how it I'm not saying it's like a movie, but it's 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 almost something you would imagine hearing in a movie where he's putting the monster back in the box, but mm-hmm. the, the box is this weird ritual routine of monotonously cleaning dishes and rearranging your furniture. It is. It, monotonous uh, is a really good word, especially for like, think back to when um, London investigators were tailing him, like doing, doing that 24 hour surveillance and he would just drive around, get out, stare, get back in, drive around. Like he's so, he's so scary. Like imagine being inside this man's head. No, it sounds like he's on the edge of it the whole time. His whole, like, adult life. Really? Yeah. So Johnson pleaded not guilty to all charges, and a jury of six women and six men found him not guilty by reason of insanity for the murders of Diane, Luella, and Donna. He was committed to the Oak Ridge Maximum Security Facility of the Mental Health Center in penetanguishing ontario and he remains there as far as i know to this day so that's why still there as far as i know so that's why when uh you said well he he sounds like he could have gone into politics or jail you know and you said neither yeah i picked up on that i didn't let that go i was waiting for it i was letting tell it so he was found not guilty but he was found because he was He wasn't criminally responsible because he was insane. Mm -hmm. So psychiatrists have endlessly studied and interviewed Johnson, and they found he's motivated by sexual gratification, anger toward women, including the need for revenge and the need for absolute control over them, and have described him as a sexual sadist, lust murderer, and necrophile. I'm glad at the very least that his ex-wife seem to have gotten a lot of distance in this story with her kid because jesus christ after that i know it's almost like a little a blessing this man wasn't in your life yeah yeah because you fit a whole description of what you just listed there he's it's sexual gratification a hatred towards women like you like that that was dangerous danger close for her for her for sure Oh, I got goosebumps. It is really, really scary. It's upsetting. No wonder. Like, I, I hope no one ever bugs her about this ever. But, I don't think that. I don't think so. I mean, yeah. I literally. I read three books and any article I could find. Mm-hmm. She's not mentioned anywhere. So yeah. she's yeah. at least safely distanced. Good. 
Um, so uh, also this is like it's an, it's an insane amount of essentially like diagnoses. Like you're motivated by sexual gratification. You're so angry. You hate women. You're a sexual sadist. You're a lust murderer. You're a necrophile. Like holy fuck! Throw the book at him. So. Because of all of this, around 2005, doctors decided it was best for Johnson to begin chemical castration with Lupron, a reversible treatment that overstimulates the body's production of testosterone, which causes that production to shut down temporarily. The idea is that lowered testosterone minimizes sexualized thinking, and with therapy, the user will change their sexual, sexually deviant behavior. Okay. But... Johnson continues to blame his actions on stress from drug use, marriage troubles, and sleep problems, and doesn't accept the psychiatrist's diagnoses. He consistently fails to accept responsibility for his actions and continues to externalize blame. Oh, the frustrating part is that he applies every year for leniency, including escorted day passes and being permanently moved to a medium security facility. But he's been denied every time. Good, because imagine you found out that was your downstairs neighbor. Literally, I'd scream. This, yeah, yeah, I, I would, I'd be furious. I was, yeah. I would be furious too. You, you and, can't do it. And because he applies every single year, this means that for decades, the victim's families have had to make the trip to Penetanguishene, to voice their concerns about Johnson receiving any sort of leniency. So while I was saying before when I was like, yeah, as far as I know, he's still there. Mm -hmm. It's because the most recent update I could find is from August 2019. That states in July of 2019, Johnson applied for leniency. So the victim's families had to make the trip again to give victim impact statements about the loss of their loved ones. The good news is that the review board continues to side with the victim's and like I've said, as far as I know, Johnson is still alive. He's 74 and he's still being held in the Oak Ridge Maximum Security Wing of the Mental Health Center in Penetanguishene. With every request for leniency being rejected, Johnson will likely die in Oak Ridge. If he wasn't declared insane and had instead been convicted of murder and sent to prison the bedroom strangler would probably be on parole, walking the streets and likely declared rehabilitated. That's a mic drop. That's that's kind. That's so fucked up. That's why when You're I right. earlier I was whispered like, because the criminals have all the rights. Yeah, that's such because a hypocritical. In Canada, like, you get 25 years to life. You're automatically eligible for parole. And this isn't a case of, of him should be being let out i think everyone's on the same page you can't let this guy out no like and, in all of the victim impact statements these the loved ones of these victims were saying is like like dude the escalation was out of this world it it it, it would just his mo was horrifying as it is things kept escalating he was unstoppable he was scaling 15 floors and he's not rehabilitated in the least he hasn't even accepted accountability for it but you're right if he was not put into uh, an uh, i don't know if the terms an it's not an asylum uh, it's a mental health facility yes um like he if he wasn't put there <laughs> mm -hmm. it wouldn't have even mattered no it would he would have just been out though most likely yeah. i mean most likely 
he would be out. Yeah. He would be out. And he would, he, there's no way he would have received all of this treatment, uh, seeing psychiatrists, getting diagnosed properly, mm-hmm. chemical castration, all of these things. Mm-hmm. This man is, has been on chemical castration treatment since to, like 2005, roughly. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say for sure. It was 2005 or six. So like, I don't even know how many years that is. 13, 14. I'm not really good at math, but like, that's a long time. Yep. And well, at this point, 2019, it would be like, yeah, like 13 years. Yeah. And he's seeing psychiatrists and he still is like, yeah, it's not my fault though. Like I did drugs. I had a bad marriage. I couldn't sleep. That's why. I have other reasons other than my own accountability. And meanwhile, they're like, uh. I, like they were saying like, dude, no, like you hate women. You're a sadist. You're a lust murderer. You're a necrophile. No, I. Those are yeah, not terms just, that are just thrown around. Things like this really shake my confidence in in how we handle these kind of things. I, I in most cases, at least in this one, he is. He's institutionalized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank, thank God. I guess. <clears throat> I, mean, I think it's, so. It's kind of yeah, but like I kind of want to see him behind bars. Bars though. He, he's but at maximum can't. security though this is okay. a maximum security facility okay. so he does he can't really do anything he doesn't get to go out it's like being in prison but yeah. but, but you'll never family, get out jesus the and the family of all these victims who like anytime he applies for leniency they have to go again yeah every i think i don't know how often you can apply for leniency in canada i think it's like every two or three years and i know it says here like every year he applies for leniency but i think that means every opportunity that he gets he applies for it i think there was some recent shift in that as well so Um, like it doesn't matter though like Mm -hmm. they they should see this guy's made zero progress he's the same man that was institutionalized in 1978 yeah he's never accepted accountability responsibility he externalizes blame continuously they should just be like listen you're 74 you don't get any more chances for leniency stop asking yeah but this is a guy that climbs 15 stories to get at someone i don't care if he's 70 i don't care if he's 80 i don't want him out because he's willing to climb 15 fucking stories yeah and he even said he knew like this is really dangerous but he didn't even care he had no regard for his personal safety he just had to feed his urge yeah and you know the amount of times he claims that leniency he does know what he's doing to those families of course he does. Yeah, he it's all fuck. He's a, if he's a fucking sadist, yeah. it's all part of it for him. Yep. And so that is the horrendous case of the London Guelph bedroom strangler, one of the many serial killers out of London, Ontario, in the first episode of a very dark series. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Oh, we got more to come. Yeah, we do. And on that note... How many serial murders do you think there's been in Canada? Not just Ontario, in Canada. Well, I am a new study to this whole topic. Thank you, Brianna. But my absolutely uneducated opinion would be um, a layman, layman's opinion of not that many. <laughs> I was looking for a number because I don't know what not that many would be. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, like who's to say? If I, if we're, okay, if I was to pick a number... 20 mm. in all of Canada's history. According to... We're not that old. You mm at me for it. 20... Oh, no. I'm sorry. 
What? Times the radio. No. According to Lee Meller, author of Cold North Killers, Canadian Serial Murder, there's more than 60. I don't like that. Of those 60, at least six and as many as nine have emerged from London, Ontario. Between 1959 and 1984 alone. So that means for a quarter century, London had the greatest number of active serial killers and to this day still holds the record in all of North America. I'm just, I'm going to run a number really quickly. <laughs> Are you going to start? Wait, what if you interrupt my, my, my statistics? Okay. Uh, if we're lowballing it. London has 10% of the serial killers in Canada. That's right. London, what the fuck are you doing? I didn't put that statistic in here, so that's a great addition while I give you more. Okay, well, give me more, I guess, while I'm already scared. 13 of the 32 killings have been attributed to three confirmed murderers, and the links among the remaining 19 victims suggest at least three additional serial killers were also operating during this time. So, London averaged around 200,000 residents during this period. And again, this period is between 1959 and 1984. And big cities like New York and Los Angeles only had up to four confirmed serial killers active at any given time. So, to compare, if London had a population on par with New York or LA, there would be an equivalent of 80 to 100 serial killers walking the streets at once. It's a city that had a high density of serial killers. Mm-hmm. Oh, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Something's wrong. So Russell oh. Maurice Johnson is one down in this really dark lineup of cases. Well, I can't wait to hear more about it. Your face suggests otherwise. <laughs> I don't know what facial expression to use with this. I'm both scared and intrigued. Isn't that wild? Then again, I, I was I, promised I, that with this episode, so. I had no idea about any of this in london i didn't know any of it yeah i've never heard this in my life so it's wild and just join us just keep joining us every week for another fucking wild case out of london ontario i know this one was also kind of out of guelph but he lived and mainly operated in london so that's why i started yeah, they're with very this one very first. close they're very close mm-hmm. yeah yeah they're pr- pretty close like you would work in one city and live in the other quite commonly also, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week. Be sure to visit our website, darkadaptationpodcast.com, where you can support the show by buying us a coffee if your lovely little hearts desire. Follow us on Instagram at darkadaptationpodcast. Share the show with the spooky bitches in your life. We love you. Thank you for the support and kind words. And we'll catch you on the dark side. Love you, spooky bitches. Tell your friends. Spooky. Overpowering feelings of loneliness. You scaled the walls and scaled them with their... <laughs> with their boisiers. We're going to cut the shit out of that one. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
That was so loud. That. <laughs> that was sick. <laughs> that was absolutely fucked up. My toe was stiff. I shouldn't tell people it was my toes. You have to pay money for that. Divorce was your fault. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> How loud was that? Did that peak? Almost. Look at. Dang. <laughs> Crunchy knucks. <laughs> That's what they call Timbits in the States. <laughs> They're going to say Timbits before Crunchy, crunchy Canucks. <laughs> oh. I kind of like it. Ew, but then that would mean What's that. What's wrong, babe? You haven't touched your Crunchy Nucks. <laughs> Ew, actually, it sounds like a really bad, like, crispy chicken finger. Crunchy nut. I love crispy chicken fingers. I get to do that. No, if it was if it was a gross one. It had a bone in it. Cartilage. <laughs> I want chicken. Mm. I like some shrimp. Yeah, chicken of the sea. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, I love that you ran with that. Thank you. The second of the vicious murders was 23-year-old Luella George. Luella was a country girl who moved to country girl. 